But welcome Northwest. My name is Jerry, as Matt said. I'm one of the teaching pastors here and it is great to have all of you guys here. I invite you to turn in your copy of scripture or on your device to Acts chapter 12. We're going to continue on with this idea of you will be on mission. I want to let you know that this is the 20th message in this series that we've done so far, okay? If you've been hanging around, you know that this is a 21-week series. So we talked about going through the book of Acts, the first 12 chapters, which is about the early church, and then we get on to all of Paul's missionary journeys. After that, we're not going to be hitting that at this time. We're just focusing on first 12 chapters. So here we are in chapter 12, and we're going to go over the whole chapter, but it's kind of like a false ending. Okay, we're still going to be wrapping things up for real next week, but this is kind of like a pseudo ending, right? I don't know if some of you guys remember Lord of the Rings, the final one, Return of the King. You remember how many endings was in that movie? Anybody with me on the Lord of the Rings? It's like they got the ring and then you thought it was over and then all of a sudden they wake up and have a giant pillow fight with Gandalf and you thought it was over and then they're walking down to a ship and you thought it was over and you're like, end this thing already. But anyway, so this is kind of the false ending, but next week we're really going to hammer it home and we're going to really uh, have an exciting challenge for the summer of putting this stuff into practice for you guys. The uh, theme of our summer is going to be called Don't Waste Your Summer. That's our series. And we got some great challenges for you. So I trust, even though everybody's going to be scattering, right? If you're in town, you're going to make an effort, want to invite you back uh, week after week after week. Uh, we've been spending a lot of time here going through big chunks of scripture, right? Today, we're talking about Acts 12, the whole chapter. This summer, pretty much every week, we've gone the exact opposite, and it's one word each week. It's pretty much what we're going to be doing. We're talking about the fruit of the Spirit, so we're going to be unpacking one word at a time, and it's going to be awesome. Um, so I invite you back to that. Here we are in Acts chapter 12, being on mission. I wanted to open up with an illustration of one of the things that we did for fun Back when I was in middle school and even into high school, one of the most fun things that we did was me and uh, my buddies, we went to this um, batting cage area that was also kind of a golf driving range, kind of together. You know, we've got some of those around here. And there's a huge vacant lot right next to it. So we would go there not to go to the batting cage, but we would bring our aluminum bats and we'd go to this huge vacant lot, massive, like the size of a football field. It was monstrous. And we would pick up some of the dozens, if not hundreds, of golf balls that, you know, some poor soul sliced the ball and it went like over the big net that they have, you know, and they just kind of collected in this giant parking lot. So we would collect all those and then we would play baseball with aluminum bats and a golf ball as the ball. Okay, so I, I, know, I know we got some golfers in here. You know when something that's metal, you know, hits that ball. If you're good, not me, but if you're good, that thing flies off there. And it can go like 200 yards or 300 yards, right? Just imagine the damage that could be done with one dude underhand throwing a golf ball and some guy with an aluminum bat and just nailing that thing. And it was so incredible. That's what we did for fun. And some of you are like, you needed to get a life. But listen, we didn't have Fortnite back then, okay? You know, we didn't have all that. We had to go outside and make our own fun, right? Anybody my age, you know what I'm talking about, okay? Some of you are like, what's Fortnite? Is that from some famous speech? Whatever, it's a game. And so this is what we would do, though. And, and the reason that it was so enjoyable 
is that you could absolutely jack these golf balls like six, seven, eight hundred feet with an aluminum bat. And so you felt like Mark McGuire or Mike Trout or insert whoever. Uh, and, and it was so much fun because you appeared so powerful and it was just lobbed up right in front of you and probably a little dangerous, but it was, it was a blast. And so what's the illustration? What am I talking about? Why did I bring that up? Well, I feel like sometimes that same idea happens within the church. And especially now, you know, we've been talking about the early church from Acts 1 all the way to now in Acts chapter 12. And, and it just, we're, we're painting this picture of all this stuff and we can talk about, you know, you will be filled and you will be bold and you will be persecuted and you will be generous and you will be on mission and all this stuff. And, and it's almost like we're playing a little bit of pretends. You know, it's almost like in our minds, it's almost like that same thing where it's super easy and there's no real pressure because there's no coach yelling at you. There's no crowds there. There's no opposing team. It's just lobbing up these little things so we can have fun and pretend that we're really amazing. But the fact is what's going on here is real life. It's not just make-believe. It's not exaggerated um, with, with the tools for athletic events that will make you appear like you're amazing. This is reality. This was a real church, and these are real things that are happening. So for us, what we don't want to do is just imagine the situation where we could be amazing, where we could be bold, where we could be generous, where we could be filled, and all this great thing, and just imagine how wonderful that would be we want to be preparing ourselves to step out of this box into the real world. And so here we are at the end of, of our study, essentially, and, and, and we want to just recognize the reality and the dangers and what's at stake in the real life game, not make-believe. So our prayer, even this morning, even diving through a lot of these incredible points from this incredible text is that God will, will impress upon your heart um, the reality of this and strengthen us to go out and not play games and not pretend and not imagine ourselves as so much better than the reality that we live in, but that the Lord would really use us to make a dent and an impact in a dark world. So here we are, and uh, you need to know that this Acts chapter 12 is an incredible pivotal point in the early church. The, the, the account starts in Acts chapter 12 pretty gloomy. In the beginning, we have James, the first disciple, who's killed by the sword. Peter's in prison, about ready to be killed. And Herod is basking in the favor of all the people and hungry for more blood. And in the, in the standpoint of a, a giant turnaround by the end of the chapter, you've got Herod died, he's dead, the Lord's justice upon him. You've got Peter who's miraculously set free, and you've got the early church um, excited and multiplying. Huge turnaround right in all in Acts chapter 12. And it, you know, just to piggyback off of what Matt talked about last week and really our theme for these last couple of weeks, uh, just this kind of mantra that we can summarize it all by, by saying we see this to be true. Uh, what we see in the life of the early church is that if you oppose the gospel, you may temporarily win, but you will ultimately lose. Those enemies of the cross, those people suppressing the movement will ultimately lose. 
Okay, and then for the early church, the hope that springs up, and it should be for you and I as well, is simply this. If you stand up for the gospel, you may temporarily lose, but you will ultimately win. You may go through trials and difficulties and doubts and and not understand, but if you stand firm in the gospel, ultimately we know that we are going to win. And that's what we see happening here in Acts chapter 12 and beyond. So we're talking about this idea of being on mission. And I want to just briefly mention, here are a couple things that are not the mission of the church. All right, you'll find lots of different kinds of churches in America and around the world. And you're going to find some churches that are characterized by these things. We don't want to be that. Okay, number one, uh, this is not the mission of the church. is simply to build up knowledge. Okay, Because if you think about it in scripture, that's what the Pharisees did. Those were people around in in Jesus' time. And they had all the knowledge in the world. They knew the Bible backwards and forwards. They were filled with information. And our goal as a church is not like, hey, here's some great uh, little tidbits of scripture. Here's some history you didn't know. Here's some context that's really cool. Here's what this word means. And like fill you up with more information. Because that doesn't really do anything. That's not the sole purpose of the church. All of the Pharisees, they knew a lot, but they didn't know Jesus. They didn't know God. They had the information, but they didn't have a transformation. What about this one? Uh, The mission of the church is not to make us feel good about ourselves. You've been to something like that, a church like that? Where it's just kind of like, hey, everything's great, and you guys are awesome. Here's a funny story, and here's an inspiring little message and to make us feel good about ourselves, right? Or even people that come to make them feel better about themselves. Because that's what the hypocrites did. Once again, in Jesus' day, right, it was these people that would stand on the corners, and they would pray super loud, amazing prayers, or they would open up their wallets and give lots of money so that everybody could see or so that everybody could hear their prayers, and they did that all to feel good about themselves. And finally, you know, the mission of the church is not, you know, to, to entertain. People don't come to be entertained. People shouldn't come to be entertained, Like, wow, man, that band is so amazing, and they were so tight on those harmonies, and that was just so cool. And that communicator, whoever he was, was just so witty and, like, just entertaining, and, you know, you come for a show. That's what the Romans did. All right, and this is a really interesting concept if you remember all your Western civilization history, right? For hundreds of years, the Romans kept their people suppressed under tyranny, and there became this famous phrase that was the whole idea of um, bread and circuses. You remember that? It was, hey, give them bread and circuses, and they will never revolt. In other words, fill up their bellies so they just kind of get fat and lazy, And then keep them entertained, and they won't really think for themselves. And it was really interesting, this commentary I thought was worth mentioning. Uh, This this one um, commentator said, The evil was not in, you know, food and entertainment by itself, but in the willingness of the people to sell their rights as free men for full bellies and excitement of the games, which would serve to distract them from the other human hungers which bread and circuses could never appease. 
And that how many, how many churches in America or how many people, it's just like, ah, oh, you know what? I just want to, I just want to be comfortable. I just want to be entertained. And that keeps us from the true satisfaction of hungering and thirsting for the things of God. The true mission of the church is simply to know Jesus and to make him known. To know information about him, but to know the incarnation of Jesus Christ and have him, uh, to know him in his sufferings, to know him in his joy, and to take that and move out and make him known with the gospel to the nations and to our neighborhoods. That's our mission given to us, and that's what the early church did. So today we just want to um, talk about what does it mean to be on mission. If you're taking notes, there's three, three points about, um, you know, what does being on mission mean, all taken directly from the text. And the first one is this. Being on mission means that we view tragedy as a trampoline. We view tragedy as a trampoline. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, when you think about tragedy, when you think about heartache, when you think about difficulty, you think about somebody falling down, and, and we as believers, if we have this hope in Jesus, we don't fall down and we're not smashed to pieces like other people in the world. There are certain elements where there's something about fully relying on God and sinking low that gives you the spiritual springs to then ascend even higher and closer to the heart of God. And if I could sit down with every single one of you and hear some of your story and, and hear and ask you about the times where, where God showed up the most powerfully in your life, it probably wouldn't be when everything was going great. When you had an awesome job and your kids were all healthy and you had a nice new house and everything was going fine. It's those moments that come in that take us by surprise. Those difficulties that happen that force us to rely on God in such a way that only he could lift us up. So I mention all of that to really put ourselves in the context of what's happening here in the beginning of um, Acts chapter 12 because tragedy was there. Right? Let's just go ahead and start reading. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Verse 2. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter as well. And this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized them, he put, them in, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people and kill him. All right, we'll just stop right there in verse 4. A couple things we want to notice about this. Number one, does this sound familiar at all to anybody? This whole idea about being worried about the Passover and what the people are going to think and everything, right? Isn't that exactly what Jesus went through, right? But I, what I want to bring to your attention is let's put ourselves in the mind of this early church. Here is James, who was one of the inner three. You remember Jesus had his 12 disciples, and then he had Peter, James, and John. James and John were brothers. They were the ones kind of given the WWF name. You know, the Sons of Thunder, kind of the wrestling name. WWE for all of you younger people. But James and John were these two brothers that were kind of gruff and they were given this nickname. And, uh, you know, and they were close to Jesus. 
They were the ones, Peter, James, and John, that he poured into the most. They were the ones that he invited into every emotion and every experience that he had. Into his greatest of joys and being transformed um, on the mountain and into his you know, moments in the Garden of Gethsemane where he invited them to pray with him and, and poured out his heart to them. They were his three guys that he poured into the most. And here's James now, one of the three that was killed with the sword by Herod. So you need to get a little bit of a history background to understand these Herods and how awful they were. The Herodian legacy back then around this time was terrible to Christians. You'll remember Herod the Great. This was somebody different. This was his um, grandfather. Herod the Great was the one when Jesus was born. You remember that he said, um, oh, please let me find out where he is so I can worship him too. But really he wanted to kill him because his name was King of the Jews, right? And you'll remember that he also put to death all boys under the age of two years old because he, he didn't want any new king being born. Jesus and Joseph and Mary went off to Egypt. you remember that from the Christmas story, right? And then you've got Herod Antipas. And this was the one who was totally different. He had John the Baptist beheaded when he was in a drunken stupor. You remember that account? And then here we've got Herod Agrippa, also called Agrippa I. That's the one that we see here in Acts chapter 12. And he was a scoundrel and he was a people pleaser. He had some Jewish heritage in him, so he wasn't completely uh, a non-Jew. So he knew about all the rites and the rituals, and he knew that he had to win the favor of the Jewish people. And the Jewish people did not like this uprising, this new church that was rising in the ranks and prominence. So he killed James, and when he saw that it pleased the people, key phrase, he was going to kill Peter also. Doing it for the favor of men. So just imagine yourself in that situation if you were part of this church. And, you know, it really brings up a very interesting concept. You know, here you've got the question like, okay, Lord, well, why do you not answer some prayers and answer other prayers? You know, because here's James and he was killed. Undoubtedly, the church loved him and, and his brother, John. You remember, these are the two guys that were, again, with Jesus and they had kind of the WWF uh, names, you know, the Sons of Thunder is what Jesus called them. You know, they had personality and they were brash and they were, you know, just those kind of guys and now one of them's gone and Peter's in prison and John's disillusioned. He lost his brother and lost one of his best friends. Why did God allow this to happen? just brings up a really, really interesting concept, you know, that Jesus promised both James and John at the same time, that passage in Matthew chapter 20. Remember, they kept on coming up, and even their mother went up and asked Jesus, hey, can you put these sons of mine at your right hand and on your left hand, give them a position of prominence? And Jesus said, are they able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And he was talking about his death. And I don't know if they really knew what he was talking about, but they said, yes, we are able. Remember, and Jesus said, okay, well, you're right. You will drink the same cup that I'm going to drink, but to put you at my right hand and my left hand, you know, only God the Father can do that, I, you know? But the point is, he told both James and John that, yes, you will suffer and you will die. They died in very different ways. This is huge. 
Because here you got James who was martyred and killed right at his prime. The very first disciple to be martyred. And then you've got John. Both were given the same promise. And John died some 40 or 50 years later. The very last disciple to die as an old man living on the island of Patmos. So isn't that interesting that in this tragedy and the purposes of God, for one, it was right away given the same promise. For one, he lived out all of his days. Why did God take one and not the other in the same way? We don't know. But what we do know is that the heart of God is there. And even in tragedy, we need to trust and we need to be okay with the way the Lord determines that life is going to be. Think about this phrase, we must always interpret our circumstances by God's love, not God's love by our circumstances. You see the difference there? For me on a personal note, many of you, some of you who are Facebook friends of mine know some of this, but just this last week we got news that my father lives up in New Jersey, been a pastor, same church, 42 years. You know, he had lymphoma about seven years ago, went through chemotherapy and, and you know, was fairly well recovered. Um, but just in the last week, leukemia had crept up and gripped his body and his blood so seriously that the doctor said, we need to go into the hospital for 30 days straight. You're going to be admitted for 30 days and you're going to get these infusions every day blood transfusions and all this other stuff to clean out and work on this leukemia and, and rebuild up your numbers of red blood cells and white blood cells. And this just really hit, and so he's already in the hospital. It's like the day before we got the news, there he is. He's in the hospital. For the next 30 days, he's going to be going through this difficulty, locked into a hospital room. And it just brought to light this whole idea that, like, man, this is real life, and you always think about, man, I don't know how long... Parents are going to be around and try and live each day for what it is. And then all of a sudden you're faced with like, wow, this is really, really serious. And, and life is happening right now. And many of you have been there. All of you know what I'm talking about. Many have experienced things, things far worse. But what do we do in this moment? What do we do? I think that we take a look at the fact that the early church was wrestling with some of those same losses some of those same doubts, some of that same disillusionment in the persecution. Matt talked about it last week, and right here, it's continuing. It's a theme. But we view this as not the end, but rather something that the Lord can raise us up closer to his heart. Number two, being on mission means what? We view prayer as a fuel for movement. We view prayer as a fuel for movement. This is so incredible what's going on here. Look in verse 5. It says this. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. I want you to take your Bibles. I want you to underline that word earnest. I want you to circle it. Put a box around it. Put a star around it. Highlight it in your device. Whatever you need to do to help you remember that. Because that is a huge word. It's only used three times in the New Testament. And basically the idea is a muscle that is absolutely stretched to its limit. Okay, completely stretched out exerting the force, right? You picture some of those guys that like, you know, maybe do the deadlift or something like that. And like, Aah! they're yelling and you know what I mean? And then like, it's absolutely to the limit. And then they just drop it. Like that's the idea of earnest 
fervent prayer. So this early church was gathered. They weren't discouraged. They were discouraged, but they weren't totally cashing everything in. Undoubtedly, they were praying for James, and he died. But they're like, that's all right. We still believe, God, that you can do miracles. So to the best of our ability, Lord, we're going to pray, and we're going to call out to you to do something incredible and to rescue Peter. It's a huge word. Let's keep on reading, and what's so great about this is it's like, um, you know, commentators say it's so funny how Luke just inserts purposefully humor into this whole account, okay? So let's just check this out. Let's see what happens when this church is earnestly praying. Verse 6, now when Herod was about to bring him out, all right, this is the night before, okay? He's about ready to die. It says, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Verse 7, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in his cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. Now, you'll notice that word struck there. It's not like, Hey, hey, Peter. Peter, it's time. Get up, buddy. It says like he struck him. Like he kicked him in the side. Something so that Peter would finally wake up. So imagine this scene. Peter's all groggy. He doesn't know what's going on. He says, get up quickly. Verse 8. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. Now I don't know what kind of habits Peter had when he would sleep. Okay? But I think it's really interesting that he obviously was undressed at some level. Right? Now, you can just imagine the angel taking a look at Peter and being like, that's not really going to work for public viewing because I'm bringing you out of here. So can you do me a favor and kind of, you know, cover up a little bit? You know, I'll never forget a couple months ago, my brother-in-law was here and his two little girls, his little, my little nieces were, you know, always getting up early and it was a Saturday morning. So they were up super early downstairs. Everybody else was asleep. I come rolling out and, you know, in my gym shorts, in mesh shorts, and I come out to make my coffee, and they're already up. And the one London, she looks at me, and she goes, Uncle Jerry, is that really necessary? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I'll go put on a shirt, I guess. <laughs> I guess it's not. But anyway, the angel's like, Peter, come on, man. Is that really necessary? Nobody wants to see that. Put a shirt on. Put your sandals on. She's worried about his dignity. She's worried about him stubbing his toe. The angel, whatever it is, it's like, let's get going here. It's awesome. Humor purposefully inserted in there by the author for us to see what's happening here. Verse 9, it says, And he went out and he followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought that he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. And it opened for them on one accord. It's like Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter or something or walking into Walmart or something. Like, you know, like automatically. 2,000 years ago. It's incredible. Or like Star Trek before everybody had that technology. It's incredible. I've never seen anything like it. And it says in verse 11, then when Peter came to himself, he said, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Now, before we go on to the next little humorous uh, tidbit, we need to take a look at something here. Anybody else find it strange that Peter was sleeping 
the night before he was going to be killed? Would that be a restful night's sleep for anybody here? Just imagine the faith that this man had. Because remember, in Acts chapter 5, a lot of the disciples were in prison. Remember, and they were miraculously let out then as well. So Peter's like, I've been here. I've done this before. I've got all the faith in the world that my Lord is going to rescue me. And if it means that I die like James did, oh well, that's okay. But I've got faith and I can sleep soundly because I trust in the Lord. Here's Peter. He was spared as well. Now in verse 12. It says, now when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, and many were gathered together and were praying. There's that idea, fervent prayer, working right now, right in their midst, right? In verse 13, and when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Can we just say something about the beauty of teenage absent-mindedness that we just see in sweet little Rhoda, all right, teenage girl, and they're in there praying, she's in there with them, you know, yes, Lord, please deliver him, yes, Lord, and all of a sudden, a knock at the door, she goes running out, because that's what her job was, oh my gosh, there's Peter, slams the door on him, runs right back inside, Right? And she's telling everybody and nobody's believing her. It says that they all thought that she was crazy. Just imagine the humanity of this. Please be quiet. And Lord, we pray that you would deliver and rescue God. We, we know that you're strong enough, buddy's here. Quiet. And God, I just pray that you would help us to blah, 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 blah. Right? Even them, finally, Peter, it says in Scripture, is still standing there knocking. Hello? I love it. So finally, finally, Verse 16, Peter continued knocking, and when they finally opened, they saw him and were amazed. I just want to say just a quick little something here, guys, that like, I I think this is a beautiful illustration of times when we're praying for something and we're actually surprised that the Lord answers that prayer. They totally missed it. So distracted, and yeah, God, you're everything, but all of a sudden the answer was right there, and they didn't even see it. And when finally they realized that they were so shocked that God actually did what we prayed for you to do. You ever have one of those experiences? Man, I've had a lot of them, and I, I just need to be honest with you. One, just in the last couple of weeks. Matt mentioned last week about Todd Everhart, a dear brother that went to be with the Lord last Saturday night. Todd's been battling cancer for the last year. And, and I can remember several weeks ago, we were at a prayer meeting with our elders, and we get an update on our people like we always do, and we pray for them, and, and, and we got an update on Todd. How's Todd doing? What's going on? And the update was, he's in the hospital, and, and the doctor said he's not going to leave the hospital. He, it's going to be a couple of days. He's not going to leave the hospital. He's probably going to die in the hospital. And I can remember we prayed, Lord, we know that you're strong enough. Lord, please just give him some days. God, it would be great. We know he doesn't want to die in a, in a stale room. He wants to be there with his family. He wants to be home. Lord, please, we just pray that. And sure enough, a couple days later, we get an email like, uh, Todd's actually going to be going home. Like, Wait, really? What? Oh, yeah, he's, he's going to be going home. I went over and saw him. And we're sitting there, he's in his right mind. We're talking about classic rock music and folk music and we're joking around and we're sharing memories and, and he's there and the Lord extended his life out for a whole nother week. 
that he could see many of the people from here that he knew and loved and his family. But we were actually surprised to my own demise that, Lord, you actually healed him enough to go home. We didn't think that was going to happen. And we prayed it, but maybe I was a little half-hearted in praying it. I didn't think it was going to happen. Sometimes that answer to our prayer, guys, is right here in front of us. And we're there and we're like, oh, Lord, you know what? I pray that you would help me to bring this gospel to the nations and, and, and to people that don't know you. And maybe there's a neighbor that just moved in or somebody in your work group, in your cubicle, or in your school group that is like the nations are here and we're praying everything and we're not opening our eyes to see that, you know what? The Lord's already answered that prayer. It's exactly what happened right here. It's incredible. So the final piece that we want to talk about here, about being on mission, what does it mean? What does it look like? Man, it's, it's something that at first glance seems a little disconnected, but I'm telling you guys, I wanted to bring it in to this message because I feel like it does apply to us. Okay? The third thing that we want to talk about for, for being a church on mission and a people on mission is that we're going to view pride as a pit of destruction. We have to view pride that way. Okay, and a couple different illustrations. Number one, you look at Peter. Remember, um, he trusted in God so much, he fell asleep. Sleep came easily to his eyes. He wasn't worried about it. Imagine if Peter had then told the story about like, man, you guys wouldn't believe how I escaped from prison. You know, I made a copy of the key while the guy wasn't looking, like think of Indiana Jones or one of those kind of movies, or like I slipped a little potion into the drink of the soldiers and they all fell asleep and then I, you know, did this and I snuck out and I plant, no. Everything was done for him. The doors opened, the angel had to tell him to put a shirt on and he didn't even know what was going on and the Lord rescued him. It was all God and not him, right? The opposite of that is Herod, the guy we talked about in the beginning. Because when something happened that was going to give him a bad name, remember, he's trying to please all the Jews. He's trying to squash this new movement. The pride is going to be what ultimately leads to his downfall. Let's keep reading in verse 18. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter, as you can imagine. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and he ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. You know what pride does? It makes us want to blame other people. Oh, this guy escaped? It must be the soldier's fault. He caused the death that day of 16 men. Four squads of four that didn't do anything wrong. But to save his own pride and to cast the blame on somebody, they felt the destruction and the devastation of one man's pride. And then furthermore, it says he went off to Caesarea, which is a, which is a city that's right by the sea. It's beautiful. I've been there. He went to a beach town. He got away from the situation. Things are getting a little hot here. I'm going to just kind of go on vacation and uh, play golf a little bit. So he went away and check out this next scene. It's, it's left in here for a reason, guys. Listen to this. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sodom, other cities that were right there. And they came to him in one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. So here he is at the beach house. and They're like, oh, please, can you help us? You've got so much. We need your help. Our countries need your help. 
Verse 21, it says, On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, and he took his seat upon the throne, and he delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of God and not a man. The voice of God and not a man. So the people were basically bowing down and worshiping him. And the historian Josephus, who was not a believer, he was a Jewish historian, wrote tons and tons of uh, books on everything that happened from a non-biblical source. So we use that to prove that a lot of things happened. Josephus says that when he came out, he put on this giant robe that was completely made of silver. That his message was early in the morning. So he got up and he gave this oration and the way the sun was bouncing off of his robes, he literally looked like an angel, like a deity. And the people were so moved, they started this chant saying, this is our God. He is not a man. These are the voices of God, not a man. And Josephus says he did nothing to stop the worship. He's like, bring it on. He was taking the worship of the Lord. Verse 23, it says, and immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. Notice this. He was eaten by worms and he breathed his last. Do you remember what Luke, the writer of this, you remember what his occupation was? He's a physician. He was a doctor. Josephus, in his account, says that Herod was struck with a tapeworm. A tiny little parasite, almost microscopic, right as he was giving that message. And it was only a matter of several days later that those tapeworms multiplied and he died within a couple of days. Now it's disgusting, but it's left in here for a reason. And think about it, guys. Think about this idea that Herod's pride was the thing that was up there. And think about how a microscopic thing that seems so small and so tiny, if left unchecked from the inside out, can absolutely destroy in a matter of days. The Bible is filled with warnings and illustrations about pride about giving God the glory, about being humble, not about taking worship for ourselves. And those little seeds, those little nuggets, those little parasites of pride so easily can enter into humans and so easily can enter into a church where we forget all of the grace of God and start to think, man, aren't we something else? So what do we say about this, guys? What do we say about this? What's the application I just want to end with four questions for us that we can ask ourselves as individuals and even as a church about this whole idea about being on mission. What do we conclude? What are the statements that we want to make almost collectively as a church? I will take each day as an opportunity to share the gospel until the Lord sees fit to bring me home. Can we say that as individuals? Illustration of James, illustration of John, first one to die, the very last one to die. God used them both. We don't know how much time we're going to have. The early church said, we want to take every moment possible and spread this great gospel. Number two, I will fervently pray, there's that word, and I will utilize this weapon of prayer to see change happen in me and in the world. 
Guys, we know that whole idea about fervently praying, stretching our muscle to the limit. The Lord will bring us near to him when that happens. And we want that to be true of us. Number three, I will look for the power of God in my life and I will walk through the doors that he opens, just like Peter did. He's not taking credit for anything. It was all the angel of the Lord. Can we say that same thing? Can we see those open doors? Can we follow God through them? incredible and lastly i will give god the glory for all things and i will squash pride at the source we don't want to be like herod we don't want to be taking glory and we don't want to be consumed by pride church that's our prayer for us let's bow together and god we come before you and we've said much and there's so many things god that you have for us in this chapter and in this book But Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this passage that you've led us to. And God, we know that your spirit is alive and working and moving. And you desire to work on each and every soul that is in here right now at this very moment. But God, we thank you that if we do know you and if we followed you, Lord, that we can have an assurance that you will be with us and that you are ours. Yeah, God, and that you've given us your spirit, that you've given us your strength. Lord, that you deserve all the glory because of your son, Jesus. So I pray, Lord, that we as a church would rise up and sing this song boldly with one voice about the assurance that we have in you. And God, bigger than that, that we would walk out of these doors, be sent out of these doors into a world that needs to know you. We love you, Lord. Leave that mission in front of us and let it inspire us. In your son's name we pray.